you are getting notes and we're going to head for Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14 is where we're going to start off this morning. While you're doing that, let's just see where we go here. Name the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah's one. Dan. Issachar. Asher. Blitzen. Donner. Reuben's one. Benjamin, Manasseh, Gad, Levi. Levi. Did we get them all? Okay, here we go. Reuben, Simeon, we didn't say it. Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh. What's the problem? There's too many. There's more than 12. And yet when you go through the different listings of them, you're going to have these, not always this many, but you're going to have 12, but they're going to be listed with somewhere, someplace. All of these are going to be included in the 12 tribes of Israel. So sometimes you have this group, and sometimes you have this group, and then when you list them out all together, what do we have? How many? Yeah. So how does that work? Let's talk about when we get into Revelation 14. So let's set up our scene where we're at. We're talking, if you haven't been with us, the tribulation period. Tribulation period is the most horrific period in all of human history. It is described as a period where God is, says if he doesn't intervene, men will destroy himself. Now what group of people will be especially attacked during this period of time? The Jews, okay. Um, we have a speaker coming to, uh, one of the Sundays and doing a whole, a whole day on the Jewish faith, and uh, that'll be in our missions conference. He put out this week an article that dealt with the attack that happened last Saturday, a week ago Saturday, and it says, Greeting friend, greeting friends. Greetings, friends. Sorry. In light of the horrific events that took place this past weekend at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, I wanted to send along a brief note to our friends and supporters to share some thoughts. We are all witnessing a tragedy, and there is certainly cause for shock, grief, and alarm. It is, however, just one of the many, many atrocities, which one cannot even count, that have been perpetuated against the Jewish people since Sinai. That is not to minimize the sadness or outrage about it all, but only to highlight that this is the plight of my people. The next anti-Semitic act is just around the corner. This particular tragedy is before our eyes, so it is vivid and hits us all in a visceral way. But our people have endured these acts since the beginning of our existence. Our sadness will grow in the upcoming days as we learn more about the victims and their stories. Already we know of one woman who survived the Holocaust only to meet a gruesome fate at 97 years of age. These reflections pierce deep within the human soul and leave us stunned. Because of technology and media, the world is seeing all of this and reacting. Perhaps some good will come of the worldwide exposure. But if it does, it will unfortunately be short-lived. After the Holocaust, there was far-reaching shock and horror throughout the world. And yet in 70 years, the level of anti-Semitism in the world has returned to where it was just before World War II. This is the nature of mankind. Therefore, we must accept the sad reality that the events which occurred in Pittsburgh will happen again. In fact, with each bomb or rocket hurled at Israel, it is, in essence, happening almost already almost every day. Not all the events will make head, news headlines, so there is not a worldwide condemnation, but they are occurring as various factions contemplate harm and elimination for the Jewish people. Haman, Antiochus, 
Hitler, and the weekend shooter are among those who have received notable mention. But these wicked men are just a few in a very long line of evildoers who have acted throughout the history of Israel. Having said all this, I do want to suggest a few things that come to mind in which I believe we would all be served well to reflect on at this time. Number one, sin is real. There is evil in the world, and that evil will not be eradicated by human attempts to create peace on earth. Some of the voices calling for unity may be well-intended, but the evil that lurks among men will not be impacted by them. Curbing free speech or toning down the rhetoric has really nothing to do with evil acts. Provocative speech is not to blame for violent criminal acts. Sin is to blame. The heart of man is wicked by nature, and only Jesus Christ can change those hearts. Number two, the devil is active in this age. We must never let down our guard while he is seeking to devour and destroy. We are no match for him, but can only withstand him if we rely on Jesus to strengthen and protect us. Further, the devil hates what God loves, so he hates Israel. He will never cease to destroy her until Messiah sends him to his future eternal abode in the lake of fire. Three, eternity is but a moment away. Now, no one really knows when the end will come. We must be prepared and use the time we have effectively. We must also be vigilant in sharing with the unsaved since their last opportunity to accept the gospel may be today. Number four, the Holocaust predicted in Matthew 24 is real. It is surely coming. Events like Pittsburgh can remind us of that sobering reality which can move us to seek the face of God in our lives and to reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The purging of Israel will be the focus of the 70th week of Daniel. But all the earth will suffer as God's wrath, which is much worse than the wrath of man that evil reveals, is poured out upon the globe. We must reach Jew and Gentile before it is too late. Number five, do we have the spirit of forgiveness? This is a difficult concept to consider in times of horror, and I admit that I struggle with it. But Jesus is willing to forgive the shooter, and we should try to develop a willingness to do as well. That is not to say that we forget what has happened, but perhaps this event can be used by believers to reflect on our attitude about forgiveness in general, and if we have forgiven those in our lives as we should. I hope these reflections can help a little. They have been helpful to me. Please pray for my people. We'll be hearing more about, from Craig, more about that Jewish faith, but it's interesting, put it in, in perspective, as he has, that in the future, Israel's going to be in, uh, in the, um, you know, in the, uh, um, yeah, what do you call it, uh, on a scope, in the crosshairs, in the crosshairs of the attack by Satan, and it's going to get bad. Now, the people that he uses, we've talked about Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan himself is active. Where we stopped last week is who's on God's side during this time period. We started in red, and we want to build on this, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the other four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea with that wind that was just talked about, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. There were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And it lists those tribes. Now go to chapter 14. Chapter 14. We'll come back in a moment and we'll look at those listing of tribes. But in chapter 14, he picks up the story of these 144,000. 
I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. They sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, that no man could learn that song, that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth." These are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And then he goes on and talks about an angel with the everlasting gospel. Okay, let's, let's put together what we have on the 144,000. They are not the Jehovah Witnesses and only a select few of JWs. These are witnesses for Jehovah, but they are not what, what that group calls themselves. These individuals, as we go through, their, their um, introduction into the series is right before the sixth seal. So it's towards the middle point of the tribulation that it happens, because the seventh seal is the middle of the tribulation. And so the angels are holding back, and they're told, okay, what you need to do is hold back any more of what's happening in those first judgments, the first five judgments, six judgments, that are upon the earth, like the famines, the earthquakes, the, uh, the celestial upheaval, the persecution that's happening. And so now God says, I want to, I want to seal 144,000 witnesses. And he calls them the servants of God. And so they get sealed. Remember in Bible days, the idea of sealing is like taking your signet ring and you're putting your seal on it, and it indicates a couple things. It indicates ownership and or protection, okay, that nobody else can get in or that it belongs to you or both. And so God is sealing these individuals, and it's stated in the passage, this is the seal of the living God, that he owns them, that he protects them. So it's a, it's a clear marking by God Almighty. It's said as well that they also, they have the seal in their foreheads, and as well that they have the name of God written in their foreheads. How visible that is, we said last week, we don't know. Okay, if, uh, if any of you remember reading, um, what was that series? Um, Left Behind series, thank you. If you read that, there was, there was some type of seal that the believers could see, but nobody else could see, of those who were, had that seal upon their forehead. And that was LaHaye's idea of what it was. Again, we don't know if that's true. That was just his postulation of it was, of what, how it works. But um, as, whereas those who are following Antichrist and Satan, they get the seal in their hand, their forehead, God has sealed in the forehead his saints and put his name upon it. And so the result is that, that uh, they're going to be protected and they're going to go into this, this period now of this, the trumpet judgments and also the vile judgments. And what we pointed out is, just like in history, that, for instance, in Egypt, God's people did not suffer the plagues of Egypt like the rest of Egypt did. So God says the rest of the plagues, the vials and the trumpets that come, those 144,000 will be protected uh, where they won't suffer the same things that other people suffer. They're going to live through, basically, the, it seems like they're guaranteed life through no matter what is happening in the world around them. And so they're doing their job. They're becoming witnesses. The effect of their witness is mentioned in chapter 7 and chapter 14, that they have a tremendous amount of witness. Now, we read the passage, and what we pointed out was that there's 12,000 from each of the different tribes, males, 
12,000 males. It's not people. When he says that the, the 12,000 men who are there in the original language, it's not talking men like in mankind. It's males. And so there's 12,000 males. They are called the redeemed. They are called followers of the Lamb. They are indicated that they are pure, dedicated, not defiled by woman. That doesn't mean to don't run away with this and say, okay, the Bible says that sexual activity is wrong. No. But these are individuals that are so focused and totally dedicated that they're going to basically not have like 1 Corinthians um, 7 talks about they won't have the distraction of family. They'll be just focused on serving the Lord full time. That's where Paul says, I wish you were like me at this time with this hour of, of the persecution starting for the early church, that he encouraged some to remain like him single so they could just focus without the distraction or disruption of the family or the care of the family in the persecution. Well, these guys will be focused uh, in that sense of being apparently single individuals that are dedicated in that sense. They are very clearly, it's mentioned here, that they have no guile, no deceit. They're going to be true witnesses. They're going to be speaking the truth. They're not going to water it down. They're not going to give, give any kind of falsehoods. Now, the reason that I think he mentions this, this is, this is my thought, the reason that he mentions this is what is happening? What does God give people over to during this time period? The, the delusions, the deceptions. There's going to be so much lying, so much falsehood that is going on. Remember the, the talks about Antichrist deceiving the world. Satan giving great deception with the miracles and everything. God is contrasting and saying, my people, my witnesses are speaking truth in a world where everything is being publicized that is false. Okay, So apparently, there's going to come an age where the news won't be true. Can you imagine that happening? Okay. But in the future, it's going to be, that's what's going to permeate society more than it does now. And he's saying, my witnesses, they're going to be, these, they're going to be speaking the truth. And so he makes the comment, and he seems to highlight it, that there's no deceit, no fault before the throne. That these guys are sincere. The idea that he's using here is the idea that there's no hypocrisy. That they are, they are being, what they say and what they are is what they say and what they are. It's all honest. Um, they are told to be, called to be the first fruits of God. When that term is used, then the indication right away is there's going to be a whole lot more following. And so there, God is starting to reap his harvest. He's very active. And they're going to win multitudes. In chapter 7, if we jump back there, there's going to be the description of those who are singing and in heaven. And it's interesting that when they talk about him, it says in verse 9 of chapter 7, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all the nations, kindreds, people, tongues, stood before the throne, before the Lamb. They cried, Salvation to our God, which sits on the throne. The angel stood before the throne, saying, and it talks about blessing, glory, honor, verse 12. And one of the people asked this, What are these which are arrayed in white, and whence came they? And he goes on, verse 14, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, have washed their robes, made white, in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, serve him day and night in the temple. Him that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall no more hunger, neither thirst, neither shall the sun light upon them, nor any heat. Verse 16 talks about the same type of, um, of afflictions that are going on because of the seals. And so it seems if we follow the, con the context of the passage, he talks about, he talks about all the... Um, all the disasters happening and all the heat, the thirst, all those things. Then he talks about his 144,000. Then he talks about people 
who are no longer suffering those things who are in heaven because of their faith. They've been martyred. The 144,000 in there, which seems to lead to me, it seems logical, that these are the fruits of their witness. They were the first fruits. These are the harvest. These are people getting saved because of their witness. And he talks about how so many get saved, great multitudes, and uh, most of those will die for their faith. They will end up being martyred during that period of time. Let's go, let's go back to that thought. Let's, let's pause on this. The 12 tribes are listed in Revelation 7. And if you look down in Revelation 7 and page through verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, you'll notice that most of the names are there. However, okay, they're not all there, the same names that you typically do. Here's a listing. You can look this up anywhere on internet. Just find, you know, the different tribes. And if you go to different passages, you can see that at times they're very similar, but at times there's one, two differences, or there's an addition of one, subtraction of the other. Let me, let me see if I can make it a little bit little bit broader, because these all have the same names in given in order, but you'll see like in Deuteronomy, then Simeon isn't listed. If you go down into Numbers, Numbers 1 and 13, Levi isn't listed in a couple of the different listings of the 12 tribes. And so if you go through the passage, now if you look at the very last column, Revelation 7, you'll notice who's not listed. Dan isn't listed. Oh, by the way, on this chart, there's one more missing. Ephraim is not listed in this in the, he would be number 14, okay? And so Ephraim is not listed. And if you go to Revelation 7, you're going to find that Dan and Ephraim are not listed in the listing of the 12 tribes in Revelation 7. And so why is it sometimes some are mentioned and some aren't? In fact, let me, let me see if I can just clarify for you. When they're dividing the land, okay, Joseph isn't mentioned, but his two sons are the ones that take Joseph's place, okay? You have Ephraim and Manasseh. And then you have beyond the 12 tribes, you also have Levi being given the cities. So actually there was 13 allocations being made. One, uh, 12 of them got lands, one of them got cities. You go to Ezekiel 48. This is the kingdom passage. In the kingdom passage, Joseph again is replaced by Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons. Levi's tribe doesn't get cities, but they get a territory, okay, which is a little bit different. In Revelation 7, Levi's listed, Joseph is listed, Manasseh is listed, but Ephraim and then Dan for the first time, he's not listed. Okay? So the question comes up for Bible students to say, okay, why is there a difference at times in the different multiple listings? Why does sometimes it has this one, sometimes it has Joseph and not Manasseh and Ephraim, sometimes it has Dan, then it doesn't have Dan. Sometimes, why is it? Actually, you know, to just, we don't know. We don't know why that is. There isn't a clear-cut answer that's given that everybody agrees upon. Now, it's suggested that what happened in Revelation 7, here's the suggestion that is made why it happens, that Dan submitted. Because they were the smallest of the tribes, some will say. They were the first to go into apostasy in the book of Judges. And remember when we were doing the series on the Judges, we had talked about and mentioned how Dan left their territory. They moved all the way to the northern part. Not their allocated territory, but they left it because they could not conquer the Canaanites, would not conquer them. So they went to an area that they thought would be easier to conquer. They went far north, and they were one of the first tribes when they relocated to get into apostasy. The other tribe that got into apostasy in the book of Judges was the tribe of Ephraim. 
okay? That they, in the book of Judges, the, these tribes, they all, everybody did, all the Jews, but especially these two tribes seem to have been really pocketed and, and you know, marked by their idolatry. Genesis, some suggest, if you go to Genesis 49, look at verse 17. This is the passage where uh, dad is dying and Jacob is making comments about all of his 12 sons. And he talks about the serpent or the adder coming out of the tribe of, of Dan. Some think, okay, that means that the snake, the, the serpent, the false prophet is coming out of the tribe of Dan. Therefore, you know, he's claiming, and remember we mentioned in describing the false prophet, he is described by the terms of lamb, which brings him into a religious realm of, of doing sacrifice. And that some suggest he's Jewish in background, whereas Antichrist is Gentile. And they work together at that time. That could be true. I don't know. Okay, these are just thoughts that people give. Here's what I, here's what I do know, that when you go to, the, to Ezekiel 48, okay, in the book of tribulation, Dan isn't mentioned. But when you go right after the tribulation and Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom and talks about who gets the, the areas of the kingdom, Dan is the first tribe mentioned of getting land. So I, I don't know. I don't know where it is, okay, why it is. Now, some will get into this question, okay, they'll ask the question, why are there 12,000 increments, okay? Um, you know, well, 12, 12 tribes, 12,000, it's just the round number. Is there any indication? And some will spend a lot of time trying to figure this out, okay? God bless them for having all that time to try to figure out something that, you know, is there. No one really knows why. Some point out that under Moses and under David, when they would, uh, when they start putting the troops, the armies together, they would do everything in thousands, increments of a thousand. David did his army that way. Moses did his ancient armies that they would, they would send them out. And at times when they went to battle, they would earmark them how many thousands. The first major battle, that's in Numbers 31, there were 12,000 go out. A thousand from each tribe. If this is the idea that it's related to the Old Testament idea of how they set up their military, then the, then the thought is that what he's trying to do is saying this is a, a spiritual army, an evangelistic army, out, on, out doing warfare, which makes sense because they're being attacked by Antichrist. Again, we don't know exactly why the tribes are listed, which ones. We don't know why the number and, and I don't mean to, to try to be foolish or derogatory, but at times it's like, if we don't know, let's not spend all of our time on what we don't know, and let's focus on what we can know. Okay, that, that's, that might be my foolish thinking that says, okay, you know, enough of that conversation, enough of that research, because any, any conclusion we have is just speculation. Okay, so that gives you some ideas. What I do know is this, as we mentioned and read just a few moments ago, the result of their ministry, okay, that they go out, there's an innumerable host that's getting born again from all over the world. So these guys are going everywhere. They're not just going to the territory of, uh, of the Middle East. Now there is, there, is a, there is a witness going to the Middle East. Do you remember who that is? That God will say, okay, you folk are going to be working in Jerusalem and in the Middle East. The two, the two prophets that we'll come to in a few moments from Revelation 11, they are going to be in the Middle East. What it seems to indicate is these guys, God is going to send them worldwide. How he sends them two by two, I don't know. Do they go to, do they go to um, different countries that are in different... We don't know. 
But we do know they don't just sit there and witness to the Jews because there's going to be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that are going to respond. And so what happens is they give a witness, and those who respond, the majority of them are going to suffer a martyrdom and go to heaven. Again, that's because that time period is the time period that there is attacks against God's people like never, ever before. And so that's what we do know. Now, what do we, just to, to bring it together, and I say, okay, what does this teach me? What is illustrated, what is indicated by this historical future fact that there's 144,000 witnesses that have a tremendous influence in the worst time of human history, what, do, what, what does that bring me to? Okay, it teaches me this. When I think about it, God's knowledge is phenomenal. God knows the genealogical history of people, okay? And he doesn't have to, you know, do a mail-order package to say, okay, let's do some Ancestry.com thing. God knows the Jewish people don't know at this time all of their genealogical ancestry, but God knows it. And God knows how many, you know, he's gonna, he knows which tribes that they, and they historically belong to because he's going to choose witnesses, a specific number from each tribe. So God's knowledge of people far exceeds people's knowledge of themselves. God's mercy. You just can't help it. God's mercy that even though there's a lot of people who had no time for God before the tribulation started, God has time for them that he still is going to give out a gospel witness to them and cares enough that he's going to try to save them. I do know this much. In Revelation, if you look at chapter 7, verse 14, the song is they were, their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. So that idea that the blood of Jesus Christ is important all through history. It never changes. It's by, the, by blood there is forgiveness of sin. The gospel was spread worldwide. Now this fits... What Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, that he says that the gospel will go to the four corners of the earth, okay? And so that's in that tribulation period, okay? I, I remember hearing, um, when I was first saved, I remember hearing evangelistic messages that were, that were you know, encouraging, exciting, that used that Matthew 24 text that talks about, you know, the gospel being preached in all, to all, the cor all four corners of the earth. And they said, if we really get involved with missions and evangelism, we will hasten up the, the return of Jesus Christ, according to that text. And so the invitation was, are you holding back the return of Jesus Christ by not being a witness? Okay. Well, it makes for good, for when I say it makes for good preaching, I say it tongue-in-cheek. It is motivational, but it's really not doctrinally correct. Okay. The doctrinally correct is this. It is that passage is dealing with what happens during the tribulation time. What we do right now, we're not hastening up the rapture by making sure we get the gospel out. Okay? We're just doing our duty by getting the gospel out and trying to get as many as possible to be in that rapture with us and avoid this terrible time. But that whole comment that they say, okay, this passage refers to the rapture. It doesn't. It refers to the second coming. And all he's making is a historical fact that the gospel will be preached in the middle of the worst time in all human history. And God's witness is going to be a major role will be the 144,000. It does tell me this, that the gospel is effective in any culture. Now, this is me. You may not respond. I really blister when I'm sitting down and talking to somebody, you know, say I'm interviewing a missionary, and the missionary says, well, I'm going to this land, but this land 
you know, nobody gets saved there, but I'm still going to go or I'm leaving this area because this place is so gospel hard that they, you know, chances are they'll never get saved. We were told that when we came to Lebanon. We were told in our first preacher's meeting with other pastors in the community when we were talking about starting the church in 1979, we were told there's no sense coming to Lebanon. All the people who are getting saved have gotten saved already. And it was like, okay, that just gave us incentive to say we need to come you know, and do a work because people still need to get saved. Okay, to respond and say, well, I'm not a witness at Hershey Factory because nobody will get saved there. It's such a hard place. I, I, I don't witness where I work at, you know, you name whatever store. You work at Walmart. And it's such, you know, such a hard place to work. Nobody will respond to the gospel. Do you realize what this tribulation is teaching us? In the worst of environments, in the most antagonistic to the gospel societies, people can still get saved. The word of God does not return void. God is able to convict people even in the prisons, even in the bars, even in the most, the most you know, darkest jungles of New York City. God can save souls. So you and I ought not to ever get to this mindset that says, you know, no sense witnessing no sense going there because they can't get saved. If they can get saved in the tribulation, they can get saved now. Okay, because the deception isn't as bad now as it is then. Saved people have no guarantee of free, to be free of trials, persecution in this life, okay, but surely in the next. Because he promises them in the next, and look at verses 14 and 16, he says, these will no longer suffer the heat, the uh, famines, the different difficulties. And so the next life is where we get reprieved. The next life is where we get refreshed. Um, let's talk about the two other witnesses. And I said, uh, made reference to them. Let's go to chapter 11. These are two, of, uh, uh, two other human allies to God Almighty in Revelation chapter 11. The, the passage is lengthy. It is set in that tribulation period. He's talking at this time in chapters 8, 9, 10... He's talking about all that's going on. He makes references to the vials. He makes references to the trumpets. He is going to be talking about, in chapter 12 and 13, what happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. We already looked at that. Satan will get kicked out of heaven. Antichrist and the false prophet will rise to power at the middle point. Antichrist is wounded in battle. He'll come back to life, and then he'll declare that he is God and go into the temple. That's chapter 12 and 13. Right before that, God says, okay, in the middle of all this evil, let me give you some light. The light is going to be his witnesses. Now, follow the context. This is really important. Chapter 11 of Revelation. There was given to me, verse 1, a reed like unto a rod. Does anybody have a, a footnote or a different word for reed? Anybody have something in your Bible? Or, or what? Okay, okay. The idea is some, a measurement. When we think of reed, we think of, okay, well, he's walking around with a flower. No, he's talking about a device for measuring. Okay, there was given me a measuring tool, or like unto a, a reed, like unto a rod. And the angel said, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, don't measure. Okay, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall, have, uh, shall they tread underfoot, for 42 months. Okay, as soon as you read 42 months, what are you thinking? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. This is giving us information about 
either the first or the second half of the tribulation. Because the tribulation is divided, the seven years are divided repeatedly by the terms 42 months, 1260 days, or a time, one, times, plus two, and half a time, three and a half. So right away, you've got to be thinking, okay, this is a consistent tool that he uses that he's talking about either the first or the second half of the tribulation. This idea of measuring is really critical, okay, to get the full context. John is told, the Apostle John, that, okay, somebody's got to measure the temple, and he uses words when he says temple, um, he's using a very specific term. He's using the term naos, which means the inner sanctum, okay, uh, like here, okay. What if, if we're, let's use American common terms, okay. What part of this building is called church? Everything, right? And then we would say, okay, we call this immediate spot the, several of you said it, sanctuary or, you know, and so we have a term. Now, in, at times they would call it temple, but they would call this one then, we, our translation, temple or a naos. The naos is sanctuary, the inner sanctum, the, uh, the, the spot where, okay, now this is going to be talking about the inside walls where the sacrifice, uh, where the priests would do their praying, where the Holy of Holies was. So he's giving an indication we're inside the building of the temple. And so he's saying, okay, we're going to measure, okay, the altar, people who are worshiping as well, they're going to be included in this measurement. Okay, is that because... You know, why do you measure the people with the building? Um, you know, if we're going to do an appraisal of our property, do we also measure the people for square footage? Okay, no, that's not typical. But in this case, it would make sense. If we understand why do you measure. Okay, so let's talk about that. Okay, what he's doing is he's saying, okay, in the middle of all the evil that's going on, okay, and all the, all the difficulties and God's sending judgment, Let's, let's focus on what's happening around Jerusalem. And to talk about the measuring. In Bible days, the measuring implies the idea of either building something, okay, which that's the reason we measure, or you're showing ownership. You might measure your yard. You might put stakes out in your yard to give borders and boundaries because you want to make sure, okay, we know who's, is that my tree or the neighbor's tree? You know, is, did, am I mowing their lawn or my lawn? Who's, you know, who's, you know, where if we're building something, how far can I go? And so ownership is really important. The measuring has that idea of that ownership, and it's a symbolic act by God saying, okay, these are mine. This is mine. These people are mine. This, this part is mine. Okay? I'm going to relut some other parts that are close to it, like the holy city of Jerusalem. It is God's city. But he's going to let it be overrun for 42 months. But some of it he's going to make sure that, it, that he is going to not let it be totally taken out of his hand. And so the timing is really important. Keep in mind, here's what we have. Okay, This is an important thought. When John is told to do this measurement of the temple, there is no temple. Right? In 70 AD, what happened to Jerusalem? It was totally destroyed by who? By the Romans. Okay, in 70 AD, what did they do with Jerusalem? Totally destroyed. Tore it down. Jesus predicted that not one stone would be left on top of another. Jesus predicted it. And when they came in, the Romans absolutely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. That was the end of Jerusalem. That was the end of the temple until when? 
No, no, this is going to be post-Nehemiah. This is post-Nehemiah. Okay, this is post-Jesus, 70 AD. When was the next reference to, like, in history, that there was a nation of Israel? 1948. Okay, is there yet a temple? There's still not a temple there. Okay, there's not a temple in that spot. What they do have is they have some of the walls of ancient walls that they call what? The Wailing Walls, they get close to it, but it's not there. And so what he is, and by the time, when, when they, by the way, when they destroyed this temple, the, the city of Jerusalem, they, they crucified over a million people. Okay, so there was a, it was a human, humongous slaughter. The Jews were ripped out of their land. They didn't go back into their land, even when they were trying to get back into their land, and the Zionist movement began in the late 1800s and early 1900s, so there was not talk of going back to what we know as Israel. They were looking at what continent to move to? You remember? Africa? They were going to take some of the colonial holdings in Africa and make a new Jewish state in Africa, but God wants the Jewish people to be in their historical site, okay, in the Middle East. And so history, the way it all evolved and came about in that regard. Okay, so John is writing at a time where there is no temple. So when John is being told, you're going to measure the temple, what's that mean to him? What's that telling him? There will be a temple sometime in the future. Okay, the Jewish people, remember, John is writing about 20 years after the atrocities of the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem after a million of his kinsmen, where they are saying, we have no hope of ever getting back, what is God telling John? You're getting back. You're getting back. So this is an important thought to the people who are reading Revelation, to the Jews reading Revelation in that 90 AD, 100 AD, 200, 300, 400. If they were giving any inclination to reading the book of Revelation and giving credibility to it, they're getting the promise that they're going back. They're going back one day. And so here's that, that important. But God tells John, based by this prophecy, your people are going to get back into the city. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple. But then what happens? You're going to lose it again. Okay? It's going to be destroyed. Now, this, isn't, this has happened to the Jews in the past. They built Solomon's temple. It was destroyed. Nehemiah, Ezra come back. They rebuild it. It gets beautiful. It is wonderful. By the time of Jesus, Herod has invested and made it one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's destroyed again. Okay? So it's been destroyed once, been destroyed twice. God's saying it's going to be rebuilt in the future and it's going to basically fall out of Jewish hands a third time. Usually we think three strikes. Okay, that's what we think. So this, is, this prophecy is talking about this time period. Okay, let's measure the temple, and what's going to happen after we measure it, we're gonna, it's going to be measured, God puts his stamp on it, but he's going to let others tread on it for a period of 42 months. There's going to be the Gentiles, they're going to be ravaging some of the area. Does this fit other prophecies? Okay, let's, let's remember, Daniel 9 had talked about in the middle of the last week, middle of the last seven years, that the oblations... The sacrifice and oblations will cease. There will be the overspreading of abominations. There's going to be that abomination of desolation that's talked about. So Daniel has predicted this. Jesus has predicted Jerusalem shall be trotted down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. He's referring to this time period. 
this last uh, three and a half years. We read Matthew 24. Okay, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, that's a temple desecration, that's in the holy place. Let them which be in Judea flee, for then the great tribulation, the worst part, has come upon you. We read in the Second Thessalonians 2 that say uh, Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that God, he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now God is going to let them come in, take over the sanctuary for 42 months. But he says, you've got it, but you aren't going to keep it. It's mine. I'm going to get it back. I'm going, to, this is going to be my area in time. And so what happens, as bad as it gets, God will never forget his chosen people. That's why I began with this letter from, from Craig Hartman, you know, who's doing Jewish ministries. You and I, though we are in the church age and we understand that when somebody gets born again out of the Jewish faith, they are part of the church. Does God still have a plan for the Jewish nation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay? And so God still has to fulfill his promises to them, and he will. Okay? And so when God is starting to work, okay, while the Gentiles will tread upon his most sacred spot, you know, they haven't gotten control. He's letting it happen. God is still in control. In fact, he's going to counteract it with two prophets. While they think that they are, they are you know, doing a work and, and deception, God says, I'm, I'm working. I'm still at, I'm still, you know, letting, you know, it's just like Satan thought he, you know, Satan was delighted, he killed Jesus. Jesus is done, it's all over with, and yet God is standing back in the scenes and saying, this is part of my plan. I'm going to bring good out of this. You think you've won. I am still going to be the victor. And so in that same sense, now God sends two prophets. The prophets that come are mentioned in this text. Here he gives us a little bit of detail. I will give them power, I will give power unto my two witnesses. They shall prophesy for how long? Three and a half years, 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two candlesticks. Why does he call them that? They're what? They're light. It has to deal with some prophecies in the Old Testament that we'll, we'll catch up. In the book of Zechariah, it talks about the candlesticks and the olive trees and how God has perpetual uh, oil going to those candlesticks and how God is working through them to have a constant witness in the, that Old Testament era. And these guys are going to be that same type of thing. That, do you remember that, the story? from Zechariah? Remember there's two candlesticks? Do you remember this? Tell me yes because I preached it a couple times. There's two huge candlesticks that are talked about in Zechariah 4, I believe, that are here. And the olive tree is here. And anybody remember the connection? The oil, literally, it's, it's, it's got tubing. It's described that is going. And the oil is literally going from the olive tree and feeding the candlesticks so that the fire never... Right, okay. And so he's talking about how he's giving his, his witness to the world. And the two candlesticks, he calls at that time, are the two Jewish leaders, uh, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest. 
I believe it's Zerubbabel and Joshua, that, he, that are the two names of the people that he mentions in that text, that they are leading the Jews as they're rebuilding the city and the temple. And he talks about how they are being used, and they are like candlesticks that God is perpetually, the Spirit of God, he makes clear, is perpetually giving the feeding to so that they can carry on the work of God. In that same way, these two guys are like those two candlesticks and the olive trees, that the Spirit of God is giving them an uninterrupted flow of strength, power, everything they need to do the job. And so we, we talk about these two guys, and we read here that um, the, if any man will hurt them, fire will proceed out of their mouth and devour their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. If, kill, if you were one of their enemies, what would you kind of do at this moment? What's that? Would you, yeah, would you back away? Would you give them space? Would you stay out of the range of their fire? Okay, and so why, remember now, God is saying the Gentiles are trotting down my city, but I, in this spot, I'm going to put two witnesses. And they are irresistible, unstoppable, constant power. And he goes on, he talks about, these have power to shut the heavens that it might not rain, they have power over waters to turn them to blood. They have power to smite the earth with the plagues. Who does that remind you of? Elisha? Moses? Okay, remember, Moses was the greatest of prophets. Who was the second greatest of the prophets? Elijah. Okay. Then he goes on, he says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that shall ascend out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, overcome them, kill them. Whoops. So they do get beaten. Oh, man. In fact, their dead bodies shall lie in the street you know, for a period of time, and they of the people and the nations and the kindreds shall see their dead bodies for three, three days and a half and will not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall what? Rejoice, make merry, and have a satanic Christmas. Send gifts. Man, oh, man. God's, God's prophets will get killed. Now we're going to stop. Should we just say, that's it, the end of the story? No. The prophets do what? They resurrect and they ascend. Okay. Three, and a half, three days, as the passage says. There's going to be a period of that. Three, did it say three, three and a half? We just read. Um, because two prophets, after three days and a half, verse 11, the spirit of life from God will reenter them. And then they'll rise again. Okay. There's several things we want to point out. Let's stop. Okay. Other folk have joined us. Some are catching up with their clocks. Okay. So let's welcome them. Let's get our worship underway in a few minutes.